And we're on. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I actually, um, I, we're approaching noon and I have not had dinner from yesterday night yet. So that's how insane my week has been. That's not and acceptable. You know, so at some point, uh, acceptability really just has to do with what you not so much accept, but tolerate. And I just seem to continue to tolerate the madness and sort of scheduling disorders. Um, well, you know, tolerance is a tolerance is a very important value in liberal society. You know, to tolerate the other, we don't really like you, but we'll tolerate you. That's correct. I mean, actually, one of my favorite lines is from a Cuban singer called Silvio Rodriguez, which everybody should know. Uh, I learned a lot of politics from him, even if I, in the end, I, I probably just you know stray to the right. Uh, he's still a staunch communist, sort of believer in the revolution and so on. But he has a line that I like a lot, which is that. Tolerance is the passion of the inquisitor. Um, I think Ooh. it's absolutely, yeah. I mean, Spanish songwriters, uh, as opposed to most English songwriters, bar Leonard Cohen, uh, really could do and produce a lot of this kind of literary gems. Uh, this one is particularly good because it appeals to the idea of the, of the magnanimity and brutality of the one that tolerates, right? Toleration is, yeah, you know, there is something. Uh, sort of ugly about it, but I like the line a lot. Uh, in any case, I tolerate really completely crazy, uh, completely crazy scheduling. Uh, as you know, I interviewed this week the president of Sri Lanka for Deutsche Welle, which was uh, a very rough interview. It will be out tomorrow when I spend pretty much entire weekend working on that. Nonetheless, I did manage. Looking forward, looking forward to the exciting exchange you had with him. There was there was a lot of uh, shouting uh, on his part. There was a lot of finger wagging, sort of an insane amount of finger wagging. Uh, and I was told in so many ways that I was really just not up to the task. Uh, and most of my information was wrong. In fact, I mean, the interesting thing about talking to him is that for anybody that follows at all Sri Lanka, uh, everything is fine and dandy uh, in that in that corner of the world. So that's what I hear. Nothing. There's nothing to worry about. Exactly. Nothing is going on. But nonetheless, I did get to, uh, you know, keep up with the Slovakian uh, elections, which have gone tits up, as they like to say in, in the Americas. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the rest of the European circus, which just keeps rolling. I mean, I think that this is really quite, quite a good thing. So what are yeah. we up to this week? Well, before we get to the EU borders, let's go to borders further away. And my big question for you, Martin, is, is France having another Indochina moment this time, though, in its former, not its former Asian colonies, but its former African colonies? Um, it's a very good question. Uh, it does look like it as they pulled completely out of Niger, uh, as the Niger government has pretty much managed to dig in. Uh, the French have pulled out troops and the French have pulled out their diplomatic corps. Um, and the, the line that is being kind of pushed around is that, you know, France has essentially lost uh, its former colonies. Uh, the footprint is being erased, essentially. Uh, I have my very serious doubts, to, to tell you the truth. I mean, true, at this point, Gabon, Niger, and so on, uh, have moved away. But the problem is that on the other side of that equation, what you have are very shady operators. Uh, yeah. which in many cases are, are, are you know, are, are essentially working cahoots with 
you know, essentially Russian uh, Russian interests. And I mean, I don't know that there is any example at all of these things ever going well. So I think that West Africa, to a large degree, this hell included, are caught between, you know, um, yeah, a Russian and a French place. Um, so I don't really foresee that this will actually bring any stability. It's just a matter of waiting for the next cycle um, of political implosion that I think will bring yeah. the French and European powers. Keep in mind that when it comes down to, and I think that this really is the key, when it comes down to foreign aid and injections of cash and essentially the building of companies, uh, if the Chinese are not there, do and then the only other candidates are americans and europeans so yes they would like to sing the song of, of independence of freedom and sticking it to you know the man whoever the man is uh, but i think that they are all completely dependent uh in that part of the world as well as in other parts of the world uh, on american and, and european money and european money and american money political cost uh, yeah. Sooner or later, I think everybody finds this out. Also, the fact is that given the sort of security and stability in many of these places, uh, sooner or later, the, the, the muscle of uh, NATO allied forces uh, will be welcome because, you know, you could end up with sort of all sorts of things that the Russians are not capable, capable of stemming uh, running wild in the region. So the long... Yeah. Very long answer can be reduced to no. I don't think that this is an Indochina moment. But still, doesn't look so great for France. Yet I, I like this. You know, you mentioned cyclical. I think cyclical is really important. I feel like, especially in the media, but also foreign policy observers of all kinds, including people whose job it is is to set the policy, really get set, really have these amnesia moments and get so focused on the moment that they forget that there is a cycle, that there is no all-powerful you know, chess player uh, who's going to, you know, win win the game, so to speak, that it's constantly cyclical. Like France is having an embarrassing moment now. Russia seems to be ascendant, but things will come back again, especially since uh, I think U.S., specifically U.S. influence of things like the IMF and the World Bank, which are incredibly influential in places like West Africa, is not going anywhere. Uh, no. So things look not so great from a French perspective now. But that doesn't mean they won't things won't change in six months or a year. I mean, you can even look, you know, just go back to the summer where, you know, Wagner Group was all powerful or uh, until this until the summer, uh, this all powerful group kind of acting as an extension of Russian interests all around the world, but specifically in Africa. And now who knows what's going to happen with Wagner Group if Russia can even maintain its security interests or you know, meddle in affairs in these far-flung places without Wagner Group and being bogged down in Ukraine. So I think it's always important, exactly as you say, it's important to 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 note the cyclical nature of these things uh, that come around. You know, China is another example. You know, ascendant China on its path on an unending, unstoppable path to world domination. Now having economic issues and people seriously questioning exactly. whether it can really whether it can really dominate the way a lot of people fear. So cyclical, I think, is the name of the game. I think, I mean, I think that the China point is very important. It almost operates like sort of, you know, a canary in the coal mine, so to say. I mean, if you look at the case of Sri Lanka, which, of course, right now I've been paying a lot of attention to, um, there were massive promises of investment, and then all of a sudden the Chinese disappeared. And then their entire swaths, including sort of massive developments, uh, for instance, in the port of Colombo, 
which are pretty much have been left out sort of as deserted spots. So, you know, Africa, West Africa in particular, which is much more distant and offers sort of fewer possibilities, Niger has a particular sort of issue around energy, right? So Niger has sort of, uh, you know, has a lot more to offer in terms of raw material. We discussed this in relation to European nuclear nuclear powers uh, and mm. nuclear energy. Uh, but the fact is that, you know, China does really not seem like a reliable partner. So it's, there is no time in the future at which any of these countries in Africa or beyond will not need an injection of money, investment, technological development, etc. So yeah, I, think I mean, say, say what you want about the U.S. and 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 Western liberal allies of the U.S. Uh, for good or for bad or for evil or for worse, they do tend to stick around. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it doesn't need to be clean. It just they tend to stick around. Anyhow, yeah. uh, let's move to the closer borders because things have gotten uh, a bit out of hand, as you know, right at the very edge, not yet inside Europe, but Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, the next stop on our way to Europe, yeah. uh, no longer has apparently an Armenian population. So essentially, the enclave has pretty much disappeared, capitulated. Uh, mm -hmm to the Azerbaijanis, and then the, there is now essentially an Azeri majority. Uh, the government, Armenian-associated uh, Armenian government, dissolved itself, and there's been a complete evacuation, or almost complete evacuation, of the Armenian population of Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, so the most interesting piece of story here uh, is the sudden change of hearts of uh, of Armenia, which until very, very recently, uh, as you might remember, was very close to the Kremlin, uh, even though they did not get weapons from the Kremlin uh, as the war broke out uh, two years ago or so. Uh, I think that they still stayed in this sort of ambiguous relation, thinking that at one point or other, things would get better. Um, and they did not. So one of the things we heard is that the Americans had been invited to participate uh, with the Armenian army in military exercises, which is uh, a very small and incredibly underreported story, but with massive, massive implications, because it shows actually that the Caucasus has now a potential major redrawing of the security of the security architecture. So that story for me was actually uh, a really remarkable one and a really very big one as well. But is it too, so, but if you would think if the US military is aiding and training the Armenians, they would have a better shot against defending themselves against the Azer Azerbaijanis. Is it just a case of too little too late? I think there would, this would not have any impact. I mean, I think on, on, the, on the conflict, and I think that the Nagorno-Karabakh uh, sort of opportunity for a negotiated settlement. Essentially, Nagorno-Karabakh is an island inside Azerbaijani territory. So this was not even a discussion. This should have been basically a perfectly good way for Azerbaijan to like show to the world their truly universalist, you know, ecumenical and intolerant. Again, that word uh, tolerant side. They just completely fucked the opportunity and they just went, you know, completely sort of uh, nationalist into the territory. Of course, this has been a very, very long-standing conflict. But the fact is that this should have been uh, as as one of my uh, one of my friends uh, and and boss, really, Tim Sebastian likes to say, I mean, 
the, the, it's, it's very easy to do uh, big word politics. Everybody knows that politics is tough and it gets done in the negotiating table. Uh, and that never happened. So what we have now is essentially an ethnic cleansing. I think that what the Americans... That's the word. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, I mean, I think it was sort of uh, people escaping. Obviously, this was not, you know, the, the Azerbaijanis coming in and, and killing and, and sweeping. But what the Armenians in Darius saw coming was frightening enough that they decided to uh, essentially up and go. I think that what the Americans bring to the table uh, is a very, very clear and present danger uh, for the Russians in the area because they actually right. have now a foothold. Uh, and this changes things, I think, fairly, um, fairly, fairly radically. Uh, the, the Armenian U.S. exercise, I mean, uh, is a 10-day exercise called Eagle Partner. Uh, there you go. I mean, I think that that's really quite a, quite a. I love these names. I love the names for the military. I love military operations names. I love military training exercise names. They're just so blusterous and bombastic. Yeah, I mean, you I gotta love them. Eagle Partner is just a lovely little thing which seems like a little message sent directly to the Kremlin. And, and to be sure, I mean, this is not going to be a massive movement of troops. These are 85 American, uh, you know, operational, operational uh, troops and 175 Armenians. So this is by no means uh, a flexing of muscle. This is much rather a sort of, you know, a, a very... Uh, you know, a very succinct telegram sent to the Kremlin. We're here, and uh, you know, buckle up. So I think. Yeah, I mean, you could you could see the you could see a, a, a pathway where the U.S. does in Armenia what Russia ended up doing in Syria, uh, essentially, you know, to the to the chagrin and really, really to the detriment of Western powers that were at first you know against Bashar al-Assad and trying to get him out, but then there were so many competing factions and enemies, enemies, your friend. And things got so horrifically messy in Syria, but Russia ended up kind of being on top in, right. in that regard. You can almost, you could see in a much, it would be in a different way, of course, and hopefully not at all to the amount of uh, of, of just destruction that we saw to the civilian population. But you could, so in, from a geopolitical perspective, you could see that happening in Armenia. Right. I think I think that that's, that's true. I mean, the 10-day exercise, I think it was completed on the 20th of September, thereabout. I mean, essentially what it does is puts you know, puts on the ground a mark. And obviously, if this turns into some sort of even semi-permanent presence of Americans on Armenian territory, it also sends the message that if you're going to start walking, you know, if you're going to start walking west from Azerbaijan, uh, what you're very likely are going to find yourself in front of American troops. And if you actually open fire on those American troops, then immediately you're going to be... So in a sense, it has a very strong preventive, or as Brits like to say, preventative, um, you know, function. Uh, I think that this is actually a very, very big story, and uh, it's one that I will continue tracking. Uh, I mean, anytime, anytime American troops are showing up somewhere, uh, even in small numbers, it does indicate something bigger going on beneath, beneath the surface. And of course, it's about pressure in regards to Ukraine. I think we talked about this last week. If Russia can, is forced in any way to divert resources from its Ukrainian front to elsewhere in what it considers its sphere of influence, um, it's, it's sort of a, an indirect chess move uh, to support Ukraine. Because I think it's becoming increasingly clear that Ukraine is not going to fully defeat Russia. No amount of arms 
and support from the West to Ukraine is going to be able to truly push Russia out. So this could be a move to just put more pressure on Russia so that maybe at some point, in some indeterminate amount of time, Russia just can't maintain its presence in Ukraine due to pressure, due to pressures elsewhere. Uh, so it could actually be a very smart geopolitical move for the United States to, to say, okay, we can't directly force them out of Ukraine, so we're going to, you know, distract them and put them put the pressure on somewhere else. Which, just the last point, is also interesting, given that the whole one of the major motivations for Putin to move into Ukraine the way it has is because of Putin's sense that the U.S. and Western interests, notably NATO, were pushing too far mm. into what it considers its sphere of influence. Well, basically this is the US doubling down and say, oh, you don't like us near Ukraine? How about near near you in Armenia and Azerbaijan? Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, I think that this is something that has been pointed out to me by a military strategist uh, a few months ago as we were researching a story for a conflict zone, which was that one of the biggest mistakes that NATO has made and particularly the US has made, and of course there are all sorts of doubts as to uh, you know, the Trump administration's even capacity or sufficient foresight to do it, but was not really uh, pushing the Russians, but just forcing them to divert military resources. So really just flyovers, come very close to the, you know, come very close to the border, move troops in the south, sort of do stuff near Lithuania, do et cetera, et cetera. So it would basically push them to have to deploy things in areas when they normally would not have to deploy. Uh, the sense is that they were given way too much leeway. I think that this is a correction, of course. Uh, what is interesting to me about this particular story is that we're talking about 85 American you know, troops. Right. So it's very, 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 very tiny. Uh, yeah. You know, but quite evidently, I mean, it looms very, very large on an area that has been thoroughly dominated. Uh, essentially by Russian, by Russian influence. Should we move to the next story? Uh, which... Yeah, well, I think there's, a, there's, there's a, a, a perfect, albeit unfortunate, bridge, which is essentially what we're seeing in this area between Armenia and Azerbaijan is ethnic cleansing through the back door. Uh, as you said, it's not like the Azerbaijanis are coming in and slaughtering people and pushing people over the border, but it is a kind of ethnic cleansing through the back door. When ethnic cleansing was happening in the Balkans in the 90s, it was enough to get U.S. intervention. And, and both both diplomatically and militarily. And we just don't see that now. And there's just not the, I guess, ethnic cleansing, whether through the front door or the back door, just doesn't have the same moral weight that it maybe once did. And there are just so many crises everywhere. But that those tensions in the Balkans from the 90s are still very much with us. And that is something the EU is contending yeah, with. I, I think uh, as it still tries to bring in or think about whether it wants to bring in some of the Balkan states into the EU. I think this is true, but I think that it's also worth mentioning that, you know, what we had in the Balkans was not merely ethnic cleansing, meaning this was not Tochnit Dalet, uh, you know, in Israel, where they were actually going into towns and, you know, just tr transferring people or were scaring them by, you know, operations and then people were standing up and running. We're talking about really genocide is what we saw in yeah. what we saw in the Balkans. So I think that that's a, a significant difference. I think it is true, nonetheless, um, that what we have here was very clearly some, something that was gonna, going to end up uh, blooming into the dark flower of ethnic tension. And somebody, whoever was going to be the loser, uh, was going to be losing in sort of an historically relevant way, right? I mean, the kind of things that 20 years later we say, how the hell did we let that happen? Uh, to this point, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that we have 
essentially a humanitarian catastrophe that is the product of lack of sufficient care once again for the question of you know the integrity of ethnic minorities um, right there is nothing nice about this story to be quite honest um but yes um anyhow i think we should but just look, move, uh, yeah but looking at but 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 you know applying those same concepts to what's ha what has happened to the balkans and what is still happening in the balkans i find it you know again speaking of like spheres of influence and russian russian involvement i'll never forget when when the us was launching his campaign against Serbia in uh, 1999. There was this big question of how and to what extent would the Russians get involved? There was this sort of division of Pristina, the capital of Kosovo. Uh, and for a very short time, Pristina was almost looking like post-war Berlin, where you had various um, mm -hmm. you know, sectors of control between the, you know, the Western allies in one part, the NATO, you know, the NATO peacekeeping force and the Russians on the other. Would the Russians try to push in to like, extend their pro-Russian, you know, views? Obviously, the pro-Russian views are Russia. Uh, their own, you know, to extend their own interests. I remember there being a lot of coverage about this and trying mm -hmm. to find this post-Cold War uh, back in 1999. This, you know, is this a, is this a is this a repeat of tensions between the West and now Russia, former Soviet Union, uh, but now in the form of Kosovo? Or is this somehow that, you know, bringing Russia into the Western fold? I think we've seen how all that's turned out 20, 30 years later. But I'm speaking in generalities, Martin, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about, about these renewed old tensions in Serbia and Kosovo and how that plays into uh, EU accession talks. I, I think that your point is actually very, very interesting because it's not only a question of the NATO operation sort of affecting the Russian perception, the NATO operation in the Balkans uh, affecting the Russian perception of NATO. Um, but I think that it's it's one of the things that to me is very interesting, and I travel in the Balkans quite a bit, actually, especially Serbia. Um, it's really quite interesting to see that even very liberal Serbians uh, who are completely opposed to Vucic, completely opposed to sort of, you know, jingoist, uh, jingoist approach to like, you know, Serbianness, etc. I mean, they still are people that have very unpleasant feelings about NATO. I mean, many of them were sitting underneath the bombs. They were like completely opposed to Milosevic back then and were sitting underneath the bombs as NATO was like flying over and, like, you know, dropping, dropping, uh, dropping things in the center of town. So I think that this is what means, this is the reason why when now today we find ourselves, and this brings us really to the next story, which is there's been uh, essentially a, this, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> it's alive, so these things are bound to happen. Um, How Exactly. So, How we know you're alive? You know, it's live. We know you're alive. Indeed, indeed. So far, so good. So, I mean, there was um, there was basically a major confrontation. A group of Serbian Kosovars uh, took over a town after a confrontation with the police, in which one Kosovar police uh, agent died. Uh, and these people were actually understood to be because the tensions between Kosovo and Serbia had been heightened for at least a year and a half now. Uh, we're in, actually in Serbia last summer and we were actually uh, around August thinking of cancelling our trip precisely because things have heated up very, very radically at the border. Um, nothing happened. Things sort of de-escalated. But sort of the tensions and this sort of hotspots are happening constantly. Now there has actually been 
a massive cache of weapons found among a group of people that essentially took over a town and uh, found their last uh, sort of uh, their last stand, uh, so to say, inside a monastery. Uh, so it is the case that when you actually talk to, I think that a lot of the Serbian population, even even in in you know people that are very liberal. Uh, are not really completely on board with the story that we tell about sort of Balkan, you know, Balkan independence and the question of Kosovo and the place of Bosnia-Herzegovina and so on and so forth. Um, right. I mean, it's important to remember that Kosovo is an internationally recognized breakaway republic from Serbia that was a product of that 99, 1999 NATO uh, assault on Milosevic in Serbia, but it is not recognized by Russia, by China, by all the players in the room that uh, stand to oppose the West. So I think that this is actually a very, very, very relevant point, because this is also one of the places in which countries like Serbia, which have this sort of resentment, and I, I want to make sure that I want to make this clear. I mean, I think that for a Serbian civilian that has seen sort of, you know, an epidemic of, of cancers that are very likely related, and this has been the argument, and there's been quite a bit of stuff written about it, with sort of the type of of uh, uh, the type of munition that was used during the war. Obviously, their their sense uh, about NATO, I mean, is that NATO is actually a criminal organization. When you actually see the Kosovo situation, and you actually see the Bosnian situation. And, but in the case of Kosovo, you see the Russians essentially backing up Serbia and saying, well, no, this is not an independent. We do not recognize in China. In a sense, they become immediately allies that are sort of... You know, yeah, not not too much unlike, you know, your enemy's enemy is your friend, not too much unlike uh, what we're seeing in Western Africa, where you have these regimes taking over, uh, tapping into anti-French and more broadly speaking, anti-Western imperial sentiment uh, and turning towards China and Russia for support just because, not necessarily because they love Russia and China, but it's just a, a foil against their former imperial exactly. overlords. You're seeing in, in different ways, of course, but broadly speaking, very similar sentiments playing out uh, right on the, you know, the doorstep of the European Union. I mean point and it shows sort of a certain amount of geopolitical incompetence uh, by powers that actually are operating in these areas and either take for granted the loyalty or think that there is actually no chance uh, of you know of a, of, of a segue out of out of those political positions very much a case of essentially francophone Africa now straying away from, you know, Europe and very much the case of the Balkans, essentially, who, you know, I, I mean, I have had people in Serbia who told me, you know, we were living under a dictatorship. We were trying to get rid of Milosevic. Then came the U.S. and in the name of democracy bombed us. Uh, right. So, you know, I think that this kind of thing is is something that in the long game, in the long game has huge repercussions. And, you know, they are still either not seen or understood or simply not not of interest. So in any case, I mean, the situation in Serbia and Kosovo, I think it's very, very volatile. They've been toying at the border. The Americans have now asked 
uh, as Belgrade, as Vucic, to pull out its uh, away its troops from the Kosovo border. The Americans have become very interested in the region, so obviously, much like in Armenia, much like along the, the NATO border, they know that <clears throat> these are politically contested areas. Um, and I think that this is a story that we're going to be looking at for sort of a, quite, a, quite a bit of time to come. Right. So, and this all comes up against the backdrop of this. Uh, I mean, this is a years long discussion about bringing some of these Balkan countries into the EU as full fledged members, which is heating up again this week as the EU EU leaders are a talking about how to reform the bloc, what reforms are necessary before they can allow more enlargement and what kind of what would enlargement look like as it goes into a major meeting uh, of leaders next week in Spain. Indeed, indeed. So I think that there is sort of a question that it always comes back to hand the European Union, and perhaps the best example is Turkey. But Serbia is a very good example as well, and you can see it in Hungary, and to a large degree, you can also see it in Poland. Um, Poland might be politically very far from Russia, but ideologically, they are essentially twins. Uh, so the Kremlin and the PIS, we have discussed this in many, many ways, really belong in mm. political family. Uh, and I think that the thing that uh, sort of Europe understood with, with the Turkey candidacy, I mean, truncated Turkey candidacy, but then with the acceptance of Turkey and Hungary and so on, is that these countries are in some sense extremely dangerous because they actually can become fifth columns for very anti-European value forces within the European operation. As a matter of fact, I mean, it might be really too late at this stage as we're seeing more and more European sort of internal sort of core members uh, turning farther and farther and farther to a, this sort of strange pro-Putin or Putinophilic or Putin Putinofriendly wing. Yeah. So <clears throat> over the weekend, actually, I mean, you know, yeah, between yesterday and today, the country went back into this pro-Russian FICO alliance. This is essentially a political party of the of the far right. I mean, a populist far right, which has actually made very clear statements of allegiance to 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 not allegiance, but I mean, it's it's friendliness to to the Kremlin. So I think that the question of reform has been in the in the on the on the table for a very long time, but the problem is that you have to keep in mind that European European law and decision making very often requires unanimity, and there is right. simply no way that in this state of affairs where the far right is actually really trying to get a handle on the European institutional framework altogether and the upper hand, that there is any chance that there really will be agreement on uh, essentially restructuring either law institution or political outlook i think that this yeah it's hard it's hard to see how 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 people people don't like giving up power i mean you see this at the u.n security council uh, for as much right. as the united states wants to talk about you know equality and and everyone having a seat at the table there's no way anyone's going to give up their veto power I and mean, it's hard to see how that would happen in, in a european context anybody willing to give up uh their veto power in a move towards just um majority rule basically uh, but right. nonetheless, it also paralyzes EU policymaking and, 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 you know, moving forward on some of these major questions. I think what you brought up a really good point about, you know, how can the EU possibly be considering bringing in more countries on this periphery whose political stability are, is unknown, 
whose you know uh, adherence to the certain kinds of liberal values and democratic values that the EU purports to stand for, at least internally inside the bloc, how they can really think about that um, when in their own bloc they don't have their own house in order, specifically Poland and Hungary. Uh, and this especially connects also to not just the Balkans, but of course the big question is Ukraine. Ukraine wants to basically jump to the front of the line saying, hey, we are your number one friend and partner and ally. We're the ones who are fighting your war against Russia. Uh, we are fighting the good fight and we deserve to be part of the EU. And we end, according to the Ukrainians, they've hit all of the, the seven uh, uh, prerequisites that the EU has laid out for them to meet candidate status. Uh, but, you know, I have a lot of concerns about this project being rushed. You know, I'm all for, you know, let's expand the EU. Great. Like, who doesn't like more of a single market and, and more trade and more ability to travel and all the things that the EU brings us? Uh, but doing things too quickly, too fast, too quickly, too fast, uh, too ham-fisted uh, and not really thinking things through. I can imagine a horror scenario where, sure, Ukraine looks pro-Western and friendly and liberal and and working on fighting corruption and fighting the good fight against Russia today. But as we were talking about earlier about the cyclical nature of things, there's nothing to say that Ukraine in 10 years, 15 years, depending what happens, isn't more pro-Russian. You know, a, a certain, something happens with the leadership there, something happens with local politics that have nothing to do with what's going on globally or even regionally. And you see a very different Ukraine that also is armed to the teeth with NATO and Western weapons. I guess the big question is, is it safer to, bring such a, an entity that's so armed into the European and NATO fold or keep it outside of it? What's sort of a safer, more, more stable yeah. action? Nonetheless, I see a repeating of mistakes if past is prologue. This was exactly the conversation happening about countries like Poland, like Hungary, elsewhere in the former Soviet bloc. Looking at it in a very black and white zero sum kind of game where, well, these countries hated the Soviet Union. They're glad to be free. They're glad to embrace market uh, Western liberal principles. So, of course, they're going to be pro Western. Let's bring them in. And so they did. And now, 20, 30 years later, you actually see a backsliding into, yeah, well, we love making money. But as we see in China, making money is not the same thing. And embracing capitalism is not the same thing as embracing certain anti-corruption measures, certain other kinds of liberal values. And I just I fear for the EU that it could be making the same mistake with Ukraine. Things look great now. All the boxes are checked. But that doesn't mean that something happens in the future uh, no, because of because of not, not doing their homework today sets up for a very bad thing in the future. I don't really think it's a matter of doing homework. I mean, I think that so there is there is a lot of talk, uh, and I think that there is some wisdom to it about the question of going slowly and understanding the process. Uh, I am absolutely skeptical, and I have the older I become, the more conservative I become. I'm absolutely uh, skeptical about the idea that you could turn Eastern Ukraine into a you know serious. EU type of value system because essentially yeah. it belongs to a completely different cultural domain. It belongs to a completely different ideation of morality and politics, which is essentially will not cease to be closer to the Kremlin. We're seeing this not only in Eastern Ukraine, we see this all the way to the border of Poland and Germany. We actually sit to the way to the border of Berlin. Right. Yeah. We also see it in the east of Germany. So I think that the German point is <clears throat> case is that we have the branch of the population has a certain historical memory that pushes them in the direction of supporting European values. 
that Poland considers itself a victim. So in a sense, Poland has the moral, you know, Poland as a whole, I would say, clearly expressed by the PIS. The PIS would like to say this and says it regularly, that they have the moral high ground and that they can. So I think that these are, you know, national cultures, political national cultures and institutional cultures are changed by just aspirational claims. Uh, so yeah. I think that, you know, as Turkey has shown, as Poland has shown, as Hungary has shown, um, this is essentially just, you know, bringing into question the very possibility of a European project. As a matter of fact, I mean, our big story for this week, which we're probably not going to be able to touch, you know, extensively, is the question of <clears throat> essentially the collapse or the, the suspension of the open border system inside Europe. And this is very much sort of a product of precisely this kind of thing, right? We have now checks on the Slovakian border have checks in the Czech border, and Germany has put also checks in the German border. There has been issues between the, the German and the Poland border. There has been issues between the French and Italian border, essentially because Italy is a point of entry and French France is a point of arrival on the way at least to the UK. So the French had been also controlling the border. I mean, you don't see it sort of plastered on the It's actually happening. And it's happening precisely because a type of destabilization that is coming from migration, but also a certain form of reacting to migration. That has right, and migrants are, are always a perfect, you know, foil. electoral electoral foil mm -hmm. because they don't have they don't have a vote and they don't have right. a voice. Well, they're also <laughs> they're also dark. Well, they were dark until coming from Ukraine, but they were dark and they were like, of, they, they professed strange religions and they spoke right. weird languages and they ate food that was very strange and very spicy. So, yeah. obviously, I mean, I think that this is we have touched on before, which is if we're seeing the collapse of this European internal mechanisms, for instance, of free movement, which for me is actually quite central to the European project, it is precisely because the discourse of, of migration crisis, which I think it's complete bullshit. I don't think that we have a migration crisis, but the discourse has been allowed to spread and has been now institutionalized and accepted. Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, we, we, yeah, this is a political crisis internal to the EU, not anything to do with the actual but, issue, so actual issue point, at hand. The point I want to make is that it's an internal issue that is actually to a very large degree being built. Sorry, we have a baby but it's alive so it happens good so, again like you coughing you're alive baby's crying it's okay. alive these are good things yes so the point is that this is not just an internal issue it's an internal issue that is built by certain political operators inside europe which are the ones that you're concerned about in eastern ukraine and that we were concerned about but we were not talking about it in poland and in hungary and in slovakia and in the czech republic so yeah all of this thing that was potentially a fifth column, ideological fifth column inside the European Union, is now fully operational and deployed. This right. is my point. And, and exactly, and that's to my point. Like, and then to continue to 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 keep do, you know to keep committing to the same inputs and thinking there's going to be different outputs is insanity. Like, why would you repeat these mistakes? The writing was on the wall all those years ago that they hadn't done their their homework, as I like mm -hmm. to say. They ignored, you know, the, the liberal bias and the liberal blind spot that somehow liberal, the Fukuyama, you know, liberalism will triumph. This is the, 
This is yeah. the way to run human civilization. Everybody will see the light, uh, and that's the end of history. Uh, has completely screwed, mm-hmm. completely screwed the the, the, the liberal project. Okay. Um, I, think, I the, think that what you also have is sort of this sort of very stupid and blindsided left wing superstition, which is that yeah. Well, the, the, the victim is always with me ideologically, which is clearly nonsense. I mean, it was nonsense for, you know, Catholic Poles that were oppressed by, I mean, Catholic Poles that were oppressed by Soviet machinery were never going to be essentially, you know, good illuminated left-wing liberals who embrace feminism. It, it, it's just nonsense. Yeah. Uh, and I think that this was part of the presumption. Look, we need to slowly wrap it up because this week we have been through a lot. But I wanted to ask you, what is that you think we have uh, exciting coming this this in the next few days? Well, exactly this topic, right? We're having an, what, what the EU is calling an informal gathering, which t- kind of sounds to me like a spring break vacation of uh, state leaders uh, of the bloc in Granada, Spain, where they're going to be talking about so they say all of these issues. I don't know if they're going to come to any conclusions or solutions or policy points or anything, but they're going to be discussing enlargement, EU reform, and the internal problems, like we said, the problems on the borders. Um, all of these, these three kind of the trifecta, you know, border issues internally, migration, and enlargement. Uh, and, and what has to happen, I think there's broad agreement that uh, in the EU that it would like to expand, it would like to have more members, but there's no agreement on how that happens, when it happens, and what has to happen before that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and the big thing being discussed, and probably will be more discussed next week, is what an EU can look like without more EU members, what they're calling concentric circles, where you're going to have like a core EU, and then you'll have partners of the EU, and you'll have friends of the EU, and these different layers of sort of EU-ness. Friendly program for the EU. It's fantastic. <laughs> you can you can send your donations uh, to Brussels uh, anytime. So that that's going to be probably the big story coming up next week that I see in terms of these these issues. What I'm going to be actually looking at probably at least at the beginning of the week is what is the uh, what is the the upshot of the Slovakian election, um, where you actually have a return to. Um, you have a return, not only, I mean, not only you have a return to a really rather strange uh, right-wing, you know, formation, uh, which has been in power. I mean, interestingly enough, I mean, uh, Fico, who was actually the the leader, the, the, the head of state of Slovakia, had to step down because of the murder of a journalist in which, uh, you know, the relation of the government to that episode was not completely clear. Uh, so, you know, the way that he went out was actually uh, in complete political dejection by the standards of Europe in any case. Uh, and he's somebody that has already said that he will basically side with Russia, that there will be no more movement of weapons to Ukraine. The fact is that Slovakia seems to have absolutely nothing else to offer Ukraine other than contracts that Ukraine has already granted Slovakia. So if he really were to cut that off, that would mean that he would be leaving a lot of people out of jobs. Um, But I think that the bigger story with Slovakia is that this is one more player, one more figure in the European machine that stands on the side of Meloni, Orban, the PIS, Le Pen and Vox, uh, which uh, I would like you to ask me now what do I think is the most successful political brand 
in Europe today? What is the most successful political brand in Europe today? Well, the most successful political brand in Europe today is Bannonism. Steve Bannon has actually made a killing on this side of the Atlantic. While everybody was playing with their little cell phones, um, quite clearly the machinery was being built. And we're now seeing, I think, uh, in, in really stark, with stark clarity, we're seeing essentially these figures popping up and taking position in a lineup uh, that, again, moving towards like the 2024 election uh, of in the European Union will become actually a really important and very dangerous force in my mind. The other story yeah. is for me for this week is internal to Italy, whereas everybody continues to celebrate, you know, Meloni being the first woman, something or other. Uh, she's also has purged essentially the Italian cultural apparatus from opposition. Old style, party line, fascism, back on the table. So people she doesn't like that have criticized her opposition, people that belong to quarters that she uh, disagrees with have now been flushed out of not just televisions and radios and publications, but museums, universities are beginning to see this kind of thing. Um, you know, it's absolutely frightening, uh, in addition to the fact that she's essentially hunting down gay families and sort of taking absolutely unpalatable positions in relation to migration and whatnot. Uh, I think that this is something that I encourage everybody to keep a very close uh, you know, eye on, uh, because it's becoming uglier and uglier and uglier as feminists across the pond are sort of pinkwashing her. Uh, and, you know, pro-Ukrainian, like pro-Ukrainian voices are actually praising her for supporting Zelensky. Uh, what is happening in there is really quite ugly. In any case, not that I want to cut this off, but I have to cut this off because time has come I hear, to go. And I, hear, I still hear a baby crying, so I think you should go He's take care of that. Crying. Uh, so I, she, he is with the grandmother, but the grandmother uh, who has come to visit us uh, is not succeeding the way. I can. So I do need, have need some re need some some Martin reinforcements. Indeed, indeed, indeed. It's been lovely to see you again. Uh, As always, the conversation again. We're gonna not promise, but we're gonna try to bring. Uh, I have an idea for a very interesting guest for next week. So we'll see if we manage to actually get that on. I'm on the seat edge of my seat. Excellent. Talk to you soon. See you. Take good care. Bye.